Hi everyone, and welcome to Fraser's Capital Podcast. On this episode, I had a chat with Jared Shane, uh, an old friend who has an interesting background in nanotechnology, for which he won the University Medal for at the University of New South Wales. Um, he's since worked at a number of venture capital funds, including MH Carnegie in Sydney, uh, and currently Cure, based out of Israel, um, where he's focused entirely on digital health. I hope you enjoy this deep dive into all things digital health and life sciences. Jared, how's it going? Good, thanks. It's uh, thanks, Mike. It's been a busy, busy week, and um, I know you wanted to chat a bit about digital health. It's been a crazy twenty-four hours, which we can go into. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it's been a crazy year for digital it health. It has hasn't been it? a crazy year. Why don't you tell us about your background, though? Because you didn't do the conventional commerce no, degree. I didn't do a commerce degree. Um, it's a f- funny story, but. Um, my father is an accountant, who I think you, you, you know, and both of his brothers are accountants, and his, my grandfather was an accountant. And my dad said, go, and, go to uni, study whatever you want, as long as you're happy going to uni and learning every day, but don't study accounting. Right. <laughs> that, that's what his <laughs> advice was. So um, I really loved science and maths at high school. Um, at the time, I was listening, I listened to a speech from a world leader who mentioned that nanotechnology was going to be the future of the world. Mm. Um, I didn't really know what nanotech was, I, but I looked up the course guidelines and saw that there was physics, chemistry, biology, material science, maths mm. in the course guidelines for four years. And I thought, I'll give it a go. And I loved going to uni every single day. So a specific uh, nanotechnology degree? Was. Um, Nanotech kind of branched, from the course guidelines perspective, branched into three channels, material science, electrical physics, and then biochemistry. Mm. And I was always really interested in the biochem. More into that. Yeah. So I wrote an honest thesis on um, biosensing devices, and um, that that was my year of research. What did they do exactly? What was... We were... So my supervisor... Um, was an amazing guy. He was a big Star Trek fan, and I don't know. I, I'm not a big Star Trek fan. I don't know if you, if you uh, were, but there's, there, there's apparently a device in Star Trek called the tricorder that is able to detect anything, able to diagnose anything in the body with like one <laughs> one snapshot of you. Right. And that's what his vision was trying to achieve. My honest thesis was just a very small part of that vision. Um, but yeah, I know that he's still working on that vision. Um, I believe that at least in our lifetimes, that vision will be achieved by someone, some group of, you know, whoever it is collectively, um, where we'll very easily and very simply be able to diagnose everything very quickly, maybe even at home. Mm. Um, so what was it actually sensing? So we, we were picking up... Um, different things in the blood. Right, uh, it's a blood test. Exactly. And um, using um, electrochemical switching to pick up and not pick up certain things. It was very interesting, but I knew that research wasn't for me. Mm. Um, while I was working on that thesis, started working with a local early stage business, not in the healthcare space. They were just a great bunch of guys and probably the best team I've ever worked with before. Um, 
and worked with them for about four years. Um, moved to the US, came back here. Who was that, sorry? That was? That was a company called Macromatics. Right. But uh, not healthcare related at all. Uh, probably yeah. encouraging more fast food eating. <laughs> but a great piece of software and an amazing team. Um, and, and then I met uh, a guy, Mark Carnegie, who had raised some venture funds. And we thought that it could make sense to start thinking about um, allocating that venture capital um, to healthcare businesses. And at the time, this was just a few, couple of years after the GFC. Um, it's an interesting time to kind of relate, <laughs> relate to. Yeah. But um, in the US, there, were, there was a complete lack of capital going into medical device companies. And this was probably in 2011, 2012. And we thought that there was an opportunity to pick up distressed medical device assets bring them to Australia, re-domicile them here, and leverage Australia as a great place to do R&D and generate R&D tax rebates from the, for, for, for the work that we're doing here. Non-dilutive non capital is always <laughs> great. Um, but then also use Australia as a launch pad into Asia Pacific. And I think that that investment thesis, or that thesis, um, proved true then. I think it's proving true it's proved, proven true since, and I think it's even more so in these times, gonna prove true from um, a whole bunch of other fundamentals. Um, when you've got people, uh, you know, clinical studies that have pretty much been shut down um, you know, outside of COVID clinical studies in the US mm. and other parts of the world, but you've got a, a country like Australia still open and able to run some clinical studies, um, there are many offshore companies that are thinking of doing some part of their clinical work in Australia. And I think Australia is a really good place to start and build a business in Asia Pacific. I, and you know, Mark and I used to talk about this 10 years ago now, not 10 years ago, not quite, but, but, but almost, um, that healthcare percentage is, healthcare expenditure is a percentage of GDP in the US has to come down in Asia Pacific. It's still growing though, isn't it? So how high can that thing get? It can't get much higher. It's yeah. it's 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 like twenty percent. It's it's impossible. It's like, such an enormous bureaucracy, and then you dig into the incentives. Well, and it's well, wild. well. Now, like the last nine months has really um, shown the cracks in the U.S. healthcare system, and mm -hmm. those cracks are wide, and it's going to take a lot of time to to fix the U.S. healthcare system. Um, and I think if I was an entrepreneur, you know, everyone thinks going to the US, it should be the play. And if you've got the right opportunities there, 100%. Mm. But I, I think you can build a very valuable healthcare business in Asia Pacific. And, 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 and you know, there's less, less competition here. Still, there are, of course, there's regulatory and reimbursement hurdles, but, um, there are big enough markets here now and using Australia as a test bed, launch pad, whatever you want to call it, to get to the Indonesias, Vietnams, Malaysias of the world, put aside India and China in a very separate bucket. And I, I, I don't even consider those countries as part of APAC. Um, 
but there is a, 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 you know, there are huge opportunities that you can, yeah. that you can build here. I guess the challenge, one of the challenges, because we've obviously talked about this, um, you know, life sciences in Australia, how that could potentially work. And um, I guess talent is a challenge here as well. Think about like Boston and places like that, like the talent pool is so deep. 100%. So you'd be having a lot of conversations about bringing, you know, talented executives to Australia. Um, but even that's probably not the hardest pitch. I, it's a lot easier to bust it. <laughs> well, I always think, you know, we're, we've got a great back, backdrop here. <laughs> yeah. It was never um, a tough sell to a distressed medical device company. Right. How distressworthy? Because usually medical device companies are pretty robust. It's not really some the, cyclical kind of there, thing. No? There was a, a, a complete breakdown in, in the VC medical device market from right. 2011 to 2014. Got a um, complete freeze in funding. Complete, if you needed money, then you're com- in trouble. 100%. Complete right. recapitalization. Was, was there a lot of money lost or something? Was yeah, it? I'd say after the GFC, there were funds that had either, you know, the life of the fund had ended, um, or they, you know, Blanket just said, listen, the, rem- the rest of our fund is going into pharmaceuticals and traditional biotech. We're not investing in medical devices anymore. Right. And they're often some of the best stocks in the market. Sometimes, some sometimes, Mm. Um, especially you know Australia's got a an amazing um, history of incredible medical medical device companies. Mm. Um, So cochlear. Yeah, Resme. We can talk about that later. That's the thing. One of my favourite companies. um, Which one, Resme? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why's that? Let's talk about it. so, so maybe I finish my background and then yeah, I then go into resume because I think it's really it, there's a bit of a nexus there. So, left working with um, MH Carnegie a few years ago and started working in the digital health space. Hmm. Selfishly, at the time, you know, in Australia there are traditional VC in, in, in investors in traditional healthcare business, businesses. Hmm. And um, then you've got on the other side of the spectrum, um, you know, amazing SaaS growth tech investors in, in, in the Aussie market. But there was no one that I thought who was investing in a sophisticated way in the digital health space. Mm. And I thought selfishly, maybe there's a niche that I could carve out there. Right. Um, and that is that has generated a little bit of investment over the last little while, but. I'd say it's more, more the the tech SaaS investors coming down into that space than the traditional healthcare investors coming up into that space at the moment. Maybe that swings. Um, I think that there's definitely going to be more capital allocated locally in in that space. Um, so I, I moved into a solely digital health focused venture fund. Um, I'd say that the focus is on has been on clinically relevant digital health solutions. There are many health and wellness platforms that are out there. But, um, but the focus is really on, on, on clinical evidence and improving patient, physician experience and, right. and outcomes. Um, so how that relates to ResMed is that a couple of years ago now, maybe 20 months ago, ResMed bought a business called Propeller Health, which you probably know of. Mm. And we were kind of talking about digital therapeutics bef- before this, but um, ResMed has an incredible business with regards to sleep app and um, 
COPD and asthma and the propeller health acquisition was um, an propeller health is a is a is a is a digital essentially could be regarded as a digital therapeutic for, for COPD and asthma mm. um, and and the way I thought about that acquisition is that ResMed is trying to pivot their business away from medical devices and away from healthcare services to health data. And, and I thought that that was an incredible acquisition at the time. I think that more so now. Um, if, if you look at the breakdown in their revenue split over the last 18 months, um, and, and break it down from you know, their medical device revenue, their healthcare service revenue, and now the revenue from their data, you can kind of see their data revenue is tracking up and it's probably at around single digit 10% um, mm. most recently. I have no doubt that that is going to be the, their number one source of revenue in the future. Is, is that in probably not three years, is that in five years time, 10 years time, 20 years time, yeah. who knows? But I think they're an incredible company. I think they've got an amazing vision. I think that they're run by um, an incredible leadership team. Um, and I, I, think, I think that's a great news story for Australian healthcare. Um, There's been a few good successes, haven't there? There have been. Cochlear 2, CSL. Yeah. Um, the, so those, those, when you talk about um, great management talent um, in Australia and, and, a, and a lack of, um, you know, that, that pool not being so big, effectively, you've just mentioned the three companies where, generally speaking, that pool of talent would come from. Yeah, um, so yes, there's been some great stories. I think in the next decade, there will be some new stories to add to that list. Mm. Um, and that talent pool will grow. Um, kind of what I mentioned to you before. I, th I think Australia is not a difficult place to sell. Yeah. For <laughs> number one. Um, and number two is I think that there's really great opportunities here. Not that, you know, I'm, we're, we're by sitting here, but I just wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be, you know, personally with a family living in the US at the moment as an entrepreneur. If I had to, you know, sure, Americans are quite uh, American focused, which is which is great. But um, but I, just, I yeah, I, I don't I don't think there's a, a better country to be, to be in, and I think there's as good opportunities here if you if you've got mm. the right um, the right partnerships and the right team to work on in this yeah. market. I mean, I guess it's a wealthy place. It's generally pretty well regulated. Lots of incentives. Um, <laughs> extremely high quality, you know, medical institutions. Hundred percent. Um, yeah. Great, great docs. Um, that when you're growing into APAC, it, are very well regarded. Okay, so Jared, obviously you're the uh, digital health expert. It's been I a, wouldn't say expert. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a very interesting time. I mean, they've been some of the best returning opportunities this year because it seems there's finally been a shift to people accessing digital health. You know, visiting doctors online. You know, always made so much sense for that to happen. Um, but it never really did until now at any scale. So two questions. First one is why did it take so long? Secondly, do you think this is a permanent shift? Um, and then maybe thirdly, do you think the stocks are gonna to continue to rip? Sure, <laughs> sure. So, um, so why did it take so long? I, I think you know, generally in the healthcare world, things just take time 
people, whether they're consumers or clinicians or whoever, regulatory bodies, you know, we're, we're dealing with people's lives mm. here and precaution and safety and and everything around that is is the most important thing. And that takes time. Paradigm shifting on top of that is, you know, is... Um, also 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 takes time yeah um so even though maybe you and i would have thought that telehealth services would have been um you know that shift towards telecare would have occurred a few years ago um you know there were even people last year that thought that it's probably not going to happen in the next five to decade five Mm. years to a decade um because of government policy, regulatory policy, um, reimbursement policy, like business models need need to stack up. Um, so I I would I would say the the, the two key things that really um, I don't want to say slowed things down, but but was the the reimbursement framework and understanding how digital services are paid yeah. paid for, who pays for that. Um, well, Teladoc was kind of innovative in the way they set it up in the sense they kind of, you know, it wasn't just paper visits. So sure. They, they can make that case a bit better. So, changes. so I think it's been a long time coming, which is kind of why I thought three years ago that there may be an opportunity to allocate capital to this space. And um, maybe that was, who knows how it's going to play out in the next 10 years, but I yeah. think it was a good decision. Um, and and so so in terms of the shift that I've seen and and are these services and platforms here to stay, so I think there are a few um, interesting evolutions that have that have come through, and you you know everyone talks about telecare, and really that's um, I'd say that's mainly for primary primary care services, um, remote patient monitoring for let's say chronic disease. Um, is something that that everyone knows is is now around and people generally feel comfortable using and and um, uh, both in the, cons- cons- the the patient side and the clinician side. But I'd, I'd say um, a couple more things that we may think are obvious, but but don't come up in in because um, those those first two points are are always the most hotly spoken about topics or at least have been for the last nine months i'd say that um aging in place is a really interesting sector aging in place yeah so 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 i've just had two kids Mm. and i kind of think in the healthcare spectrum that there are two places where consumers will spend money no matter what like my wife and i when it comes Mm. to our kids health will spend whatever it takes to make sure our kids are healthy and then I think on the other side of the, the life spectrum, when you're then dealing with having to look after sick parents and grandparents, you want to ensure that they have the best level of care. But at the same time, your parents and grandparents, however old they are, want to, like I, I see their care continuum going from at home to kind of maybe having someone caring for them in home to maybe going to some kind of part-time aged care living space to like full-time um, assisted living. And as an older adult, 
you will do whatever you can to continue for as long as possible mm. er, living comfortably earlier down that that Absolutely. life spectrum yeah. and you'll pay for that I th- and i think your kids will also want to pay help you pay for that right um so 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 i think when i met the the, the term aging in place is essentially getting older comfortably in the environment that you're in for as long as possible until you have to move into the next the next um setting that you're in and i think that people given the the tech environment we're living in now are going to are going to be able to consume great healthcare services at home as they get older to ensure that they can stay at home for for much longer than our grandparents mm. um, have been able to, to to stay at home and live there comfortably. So, so I think that aging in place does that, does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, it does. Matter. So that aging yes. in place space, I think, is um, has huge opportunities. So after aging in place, the other kind of sectors that I think are are hot hot sectors and sectors that that all continue to evolve positively <laughs> for, forever now, not forever, but, but at least for this next cycle, um, is the concept of digital therapeutics. And I like to think of, and some clinicians still disagree with me, but this mm. as a potential therapy for, for, for whatever it is that I need, I need managing, condition I need managing, in the same way that I would think of a molecular thera- a drug, a molecular therapeutic. What's a good example of? So, so Propeller Health, that the yeah. company Resmed bought, is a is a great example of um, of a digital therapeutic. Um, I'd say. So, what exactly were they doing? What was the? So, pr- Propeller essentially is a is um, they have a device that can connect to just an asthma puffer, um, and. And for an asthmatic, can understand exactly you know, how much medication is being consumed, but then can ping that user. Can, firstly, can understand that user's daily life patterns. You know, if it's you know, we were going through ridiculously smoky days. I know that feels like a while ago in December, January, yeah, where the world was kind of normal. Yeah. <laughs> um, the worst summer ever. <laughs> yeah, just been a bad year. <laughs> um, but um, no, can 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 understand a person's environment um, mm. and preempt them when they've woken up to say, you know, Jared, as an asthmatic, you should be very aware that it is it's a smoky day outside today. Um, maybe don't ex- maybe, maybe I shouldn't say don't exercise, but but don't go for a run outside. Why don't you do some push-ups and chin-ups and dips inside your house, or go up and down the stairs inside your house? Um, you will need to obviously take carry your ventilum on you, um, and 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 provide you know understand the contextual the the, con- the context and environment that an individual user is in, and provide that user with very personalised um, not- recommendations around their their life patterns to increase the probability that they will do something. To better their their health their health outcomes for the day, so so I think of digital therapeutics as clinically relevant solutions that are at the end of the day improving health outcomes in 
and I could I, I, I can get into trouble here, but a very similar way to how a medication can improve health outcomes. And of course, they need to be regulated and tested from a clinical perspective and even reimbursed in in similar ways. But um, but the world is shifting to where these things in our pockets are extremely valuable clinical tools, especially when managing chronic diseases. Mm. So There's a few companies in the US that are... So I'd say pet, pet therapeutics is probably the biggest pet, 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 like, pet. The, like, right. like the fruit, got it. P-E-A-R. Um, they've got some great digital therapeutics for, for opioid abuse um, and for, for substance abuse and, and have signed some big agreements with, with pharma companies. Um, actually, it happened this week. It's been, a, it's been a big week in digital health. But there's another company called Click Therapeutics that um, that just signed a massive deal with um, uh, an, an, another big pharma ph- pharma company, um, and we're talking hun- hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, what did they do? So, so Click in this case, um, they are working on digital therapeutics for mental mental health issues, um, and the pharma company that they work with has an asset in that space and believes that the drug plus the digital therapeutic can be a one plus one equals more than three um, type of scenario Mm. um, and have just inked a a huge deal with click therapeutics. And I think that, um, you know, these types of solutions are going to be more and more important in, in the pharmaceutical world and in the health insurance world. And I think that pharma companies are now um, thinking in terms of how they innovate that it doesn't necessarily have to be how can we get this next molecule down the chain and out to the market, but, but there are potentially other, um, other channels to improve patient outcomes, improve the patient experience, um, and and and. Yeah. Built, built, grow their businesses. Going I guess forward. you kind of want the stability of healthcare and the growth and all that without that kind of drug risk that comes with small molecules. Yeah, it's patent sh- life, things like that. Well, what's well, like interesting you mentioned? It's interesting you mentioned patent life. So this still hasn't happened just yet, but obviously from a pharmaceutical perspective, they've got twenty years of patent life that they need to work with, and and there's always a time clock. On that, now there is a thought um, experiment that is going to prove true at some stage in the not too distant future, where you could potentially have a drug that's coming off patent and clinically validate that that drug plus your mobile phone mm. has better therapeutic outcomes than the drug alone, and potentially extend that patent life. Right. And, so, then, and then that pharmaceutical company is able to c- continue generating much more revenue from that mm. drug um, for more than 20 years. Um, Interesting one. Yeah. What do you so, think about uh, Livongo? Because they're obviously in the digital health space. So, so as a disclaimer, I, I, I am an investor in Livongo. Now it's, yeah, we've it as well. <laughs> I know, I know, I know you, you are as well. Um, 
So I love their business. I, I, you know, type two diabetes is a, a burden, not just in the U S not just here, but throughout the world that I don't think is being managed well enough, not just being managed well enough. It's not being diagnosed well enough. And, um, and, and it's not being prevented well enough. Um, and when looking at Livongo's business, sure that they've, sure they've raised a ridiculous amount of money because, because they've had, when you're, when you're dependent on health coaches to deliver a service, unfortunately, you're limited by the number of hours in a day. Mm. And, um, and, and so, so they have a, an amazing platform sure that that's facilitated by health coaches but it's also facilitated by a digital platform um where they're only servicing very small single digit percentage of u.s citizens who have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and the future of their, their at least i thought a, a year ago now and i think even more so the future of that like they just have a ridiculous um, opportunity to grow in that market, mm. um, and so you know, you know, not 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 by doing anything anything drastic. There's just a huge population base that they that they are able to to service. How they reach that population base is a different story, and I, 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 that's where that's where this conversation's going. Um, but but I just thought they 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 were a fantastic business. Sure, that and I and I and I know that there are other fantastic businesses that are right behind them when um, who who are still private businesses, but Omada, Verda Health, um, Vida are all doing something similar or kind of focused on type two diabetes or at least other and potentially other some chronic diseases. Like that space is so big that you know could I don't want to say four, but could three companies win and do very well in that space i have no doubt just because there's such a huge opportunity there i guess there the game is they just have to prove a benefit then insurance companies will pay them well well, the u.s market works a little a little differently so how what's been successful as a business model in the u.s is because your employer most of the time Mm. pays for your health insurance um having having uh having a, a channel um, through employers and having employers pay for Livongo um, is a successful model in the US. That doesn't necessarily work in Australia um, just because of health, how health insurance and how wellness programs here operate. Um, yeah, you'd need a very good employ- employer <laughs> to, to pay for that. For, for for you know it's a, roughly a thousand dollars a year, um, but you need a very good employee in Australia to 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 pay for that for you. Whereas in the US, it's um it's a lot easier. That mm. that because the employer then gets the savings directly, right? The employee gets the savings. And ex- exactly. So the guys will go and say, look, bring our product online. We'll save you money. Exactly. Pay us a thousand dollars. Exactly. Exactly. And and and, and, and the games they play to prove that are really um, well it's sometimes in, aren't quite straightforward. Like it's, it's not quite clinical it's, trial level data. Well, there is some evidence to suggest that if you can prevent a type, a, a, a pre-diabetic becoming full-blown diabetic, mm. that you can save an, an employee or a health insurer like 
fifteen thousand US dollars a year. Like right. that is a big, a, a big saving. Um, so yeah, so those the metrics they go. That's the pitch. Hmm. Um, what about the merger with Teladoc? So so I Daily think thoughts it, on that one. I think it was genius. I didn't see it coming. I should have seen. I did both companies. I didn't see it coming. I should have seen it coming. But it makes so much sense. To my mind, we can talk about Amwell next because it's obviously relevant today, literally today. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I have a strong hunch that Teladoc would have been looking over their shoulder at Amwell coming up behind them, um, who I think offers an incredible service and potentially, arguably, a better service than, than Teladoc. And so then the vo- anything particular make it better? There are reports that the consumer experience and the physician experience um, is 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 a better experience on on with Amwell. Um, that's you know this is subjective, but but at least I've heard enough of that to think that Amwell is not an inferior product to Teladoc. Mm. At, at at least uh, if we, if you if you said at least you, equals exactly better exactly. Um, so, so Teladoc would have definitely had their head over their shoulder watching Amarill come up and there was rumours from early in the year that, well, I shouldn't say early in the year, but maybe from April, May, when the world kind of picked back up, um, that Amarill were going to IPO. And, um, and Livongo the same. I just met, you know, the Omadas, Nooms, Verda, Vidas of the world that are all kind of playing Livongo space. Um, now, Livongo would have also had their head over their shoulders thinking, you know, how can we really succeed in, in this market? And the merger just makes so much sense, you know, not just from those, di- those um, kind of sector dynamics, but if you think about how healthcare should be delivered, is that there should be a very tight um, communication channel between primary care and and I'm talking about chronic chronic disease management now, but between primary care and chronic disease management and remote chronic disease management, that it makes so much sense that a Teladoc Levongo merge just services a patient or a customer through that continuum of care. Mm. And and um, I just think it was a genius move from both from both both sides of the fence. Yeah, it was interesting from a stock investor perspective. Because Livongo was like the more pure play, much faster growing, more exciting. Yeah. Teladoc was, if anything, Teladoc was probably more exposed to this kind of coronavirus cycle, like huge boost when obviously everyone stopped going to GPs. Sure. Then more of a question about how sustainable that was. Well, um, I, the merger I, was good for well, I think Teladoc this, improves. Livongo yeah. is less exciting, I think. Well, I th- going back to how Livongo can access the market that they need to get to, I think Teladoc helps them with that. That's true. And then how does... You know, Teladoc. There's an international angle as well. There's an international angle as well. And and Teladoc now has, you know, I still can't put my finger on, and I, I was arguing this with someone yesterday. When you're trying to book a telehealth consult, are you booking based on brand, doctor, or price? Assuming, stupidly assuming, that all services are equal, which they're mm. not. This is a question for me. Yeah, like what, like as a consumer. what? Hell, it, yeah. Probably the easiest one. You'd probably just Google it. Probably click the first link or two. If it wasn't a really easy, straightforward, you go to the next one. Yeah. Um, the doctor wouldn't be relevant, I don't think. Okay. Would price be relevant? Hard to tell. So 
I know from my perspective, I'd do the exact same thing with mm. you. It'd just be like whatever was convenient, whatever, like a Google yeah. and probably User quite. experience would be the most important thing. So let's, let's assume that the user experience is, is, is out of the question um, mm. and all the certain, like the actual service is out, out of the question. Like my wife would for sure prefer doctor. Like she wants to go and see the same doctor every time, right. build a relationship with that doctor. Like to me, shouldn't say this if my if my GP my, <laughs> my family GP but un, unless I've got something that's critical mm. it doesn't I don't, I, don't, I don't it doesn't really bother me who who I get on the who I get on the phone with um, so that is definitely that question will be answered differently by different people how that's weighted in the market. Like I, I still don't know the answer to how, how the population is weighting those those different buckets. So, um, but going back to you, so I I think Livongo gives Teladoc a a, um, a channel of customers that are going to be there very long term, um, and will keep coming back to maybe even using other using Teladoc for other primary care services. Um, and I just think it was a great acquisition, a great merge for, for both mm. for both companies. Definitely be exciting to see it play out. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think the best opportunities are in digital health, private um, and listed? Well, if you asked me yesterday, I would have thought Amwell <laughs> was, would be a great buy. Mm. So American Well is probably um, Teladoc's little cousin um you know i i would have thought before the acquisition um that roughly based on whatever i could pick up from a revenue perspective or at least a customer perspective that amwell should have been priced at about a quarter of teledoc before the livongo acquisition right so so they came out um and that and then teledoc was roughly valued at 20, 20, 21 billion um, before before the Livongo acquisition. Depending on how the markets haven't closed yet, <laughs> but depending. So 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 Amwell's pretty much jumped seventy five percent in wow. the, in a day. But you saw other companies that I know nothing about, like Snowflake, <laughs> jump yeah, by. Yeah, Snowflake was an interesting one. Hundred percent. Maybe when you see these red hot IPOs, you just know it's so often like some so, sign of. Market sentiment, coffee, and it just sucks capital out of everything else. Oh no! So if you'd asked me 24 hours ago if Amwell was a good buy at the price that they said that that like last week's price yeah. of 14 to 16 dollars per share that they were going to go out to the market with, I would have said that's that'd be a good buy. Yeah. But then they listed yesterday at 18 dollars or mm. overnight at 18 dollars, and that stock's gone up to 24 dollars. I just don't think it's as valuable. Yeah. You're <laughs> um, getting before. That's where the money's made. Yeah, I know. We so, see a lot of these red hot IPOs, like they trade down over six months. Often, well, that tends, that tends to happen. Well, that's what happened with Livongo. Like plus, yeah. That, that you know, Livongo, the, their price pumped quite a bit straight after the IPO came came back down. And if you were lucky enough to buy it, like twenty dollars a share, it's extraordinary. Yeah, mm. um, you would have done unbelievably well. And there was an opportunity to you know probably six months after their IPO to do that. Um, and that was 
a year ago. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and like to think where the world's gone or where that company's gone in the year is just unbelievable. Yeah. So, so, you know, do I think there'll be other opportunities like that? Like, it's hard to say that there will be another opportunity like Livongo because that was like a, what, eight times um, in 12 months. It kind of went from being cheap to being expensive. So got that kind of the double. Yeah. Whilst it's growing in some triple digit rate. Unbelievable. So, so, um, but, but I think that in the private, there, there are a lot of opportunities in the private space. In the public space, there are, I still think that there, there are some interesting, even local Aussie, mm-hmm. you know, we spoke about ResMed. Um, I still don't think, I, I never think ResMed's overpriced. <laughs> but but, but um, I, 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 you know, I love, love that company. But even on the small, you know, often, unfortunately, in the Aussie market, especially with healthcare companies, Early stage healthcare companies have to go have to you know, going public is is their only way to access capital in mm. this market, and there are many many general healthcare companies that have gone public, which you'd think um, would be way too early, but it was their only you know that it was either public or bust. Mm. Um, now I think that there are some interesting. Um, listed Aussie companies that may, may, you know, maybe shouldn't have gone public or they're maybe not at the stage to go public, but great technologies, um, interesting opportunity. And I think the way that the world's progressing is that these platforms are going to become more relevant. So you may not have heard of a very micro stock called Heramed. I don't know. I haven't actually. Heramed. So, so again run by some great guys so they they have a platform for obg and i've gone through two two pregnancies and mm. two childbirths now <laughs> so, so so they have a platform for OBGYNs to monitor their patients at home um and and again my wife is not the best use case because she would you know every every consult that she had in both pregnancies, she would have much rather have been in in our OBGYN's clinic face-to-face. Mm-hmm. But she, I don't think that she, I, she is more the exception, right. I, I would think. Um, if not now, then definitely in a few years' time, she will be the exception to the rule. And, um, and um, you know, Heramed have you know, their market cap, I think it just jumped up over the last week, but it's like 15 mil, right. 20, less than 20 mil. Um, they've got a great platform. They got a, they offer a great service. They're run by a great team. And the world is shifting to where that, that, that solution is going to be a very valuable solution. Um, I'm not an investor. I have nothing to do with the company. Mm-hmm. I just I, I like what they're doing. Um, I'll take a look. It's probably the small side of it's, it's, it's a small, it's a small, it's a small, um, it's a small stock. Mm. Um, but that's what happens in the Aussie market. But I, but I, but I, um, you know, there are other private companies in in this market um, from a digital health perspective that are really kicking goals, and I think are achieving, you know, gold standard in, in their in their field. There is another. Um, guess a tele-service provider up in Queensland um, company called called medicine um, run by so they, they have a digital stethoscope um, mm. building other solutions 
they, I think that that's a great um, Australian entrepreneurial story. Is it a listed one or is it? No, pri- private company, um, just run by incredible, what I think, I, I haven't met them often, but, mm. but incredible team. Um, they've got a great product. Um, and that, that product is, is providing remote primary care, maybe even in the future, um, you know, beyond primary, primary care services to, to, to the population when we're talking about aging in place. Mm. It's these kinds of technologies that are going to really facilitate aging in place um, in it. Not obviously in our lifetime, but in in our parents' lifetimes. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think that there, you know, the, those are just uh, um, a couple of of Aussie Aussie um, stories, but there are many um, very interesting Aussie Aussie companies that that are that are that are building in the in the digital health world. There's still an issue with access to capital. There's still an issue with access to talent um, in this space. And I'd say there's still an issue with, um, and maybe it's a talent thing, but um, commercial commercial rollout. Mm. And, um, you know, I think Australian entre- entrepreneurs in the healthcare space are incredibly great at ideation, are incredibly good at R&D and, and product dev and clinical work you know, understand regulatory frameworks very well. But then when it comes to to commercializing, I think that's where where we fall over. And it's it's um you know that is probably the most important piece mm. of the puzzle. Um, that's why it's just easier in America because the market's so big. Sure. So. Sure. But I but I do think that that you know we are we're improving as a country. Um, it would, you know, I know that government is thinking about how they can facilitate, not just in the healthcare space, but how they can facilitate local entrepreneurs um, at that at that point in time where where mm. where, where where they need it. Um, and I, but I have no doubt that in the next decade, we that list of Aussie healthcare companies being success stories with your CSLs, ResMeds, and Cochleas of the world, like that's. Pretty much all anyone ever talks about be more. is going to be much more. Absolutely. Yeah. Jenna, why don't we wrap up there? Sounds good. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for um, having me. It's continue been... these conversations <laughs> offline as well. It's been great <laughs> to chat. Um, I hope I hope uh, your audience finds it valuable. Um, always happy to have another chat. It was very interesting. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. And that wraps up episode 36. If you want to know more about us, you can find us at www.frazzascapitalpartners.com. Hope you have a fantastic week.